Hello, and welcome to Michael's Record Collection, episode number 21. Thank you for listening. In this episode, I'm talking with Walter Egan, a singer-songwriter. You probably know him very uh, well from his 1978 hit, Magnet and Steel. That was a top 10 hit, and uh, it's been in a lot of movies, and it still gets played to this day. It was great talking to Walter about a brand new album he's got out called Fascination. It's kind of a concept album about unrequited love, and it's a personal story of his pursuit of a former super groupie, Pamela DeBar. And uh, it's an interesting story. Um, Walter will go into great detail during this uh, interview, so I hope you enjoy it. Also, I would like to thank those of you who have signed up as patrons of the show on my Patreon page. Uh, I've got a, uh, a shout out to our newest Behind the Lines patron. And uh, if you want to get involved or see how you can get involved, go to patreon.com slash Michael's Record Collection and, uh, you know, just sign up for whatever tier works best for you. Anyway, let's get to that Walter Egan interview right now. Here we go. Hi, welcome to Michael's Record Collection. I am Michael Citro, the host, and uh, this week we're going to be talking to Walter Egan. He has a new album out called uh, fascination. And uh, before we get to that, I, I want to just give a quick shout out to Sigurd Johnson, my latest uh, Patreon subscriber. Thank you so much, Dr. J. Appreciate uh, your support. Walter, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure, Michael. Nice to see you. It's good to see you. Obviously, I want to talk about fascination and, and some of uh, some key points in your career, but I want to start out kind of the way I always do and just ask you, what was your first favorite record? Well, I guess I'd have to say All Shook Up was my first favorite 45. I had one of those RCA, you know, only plays 45s mm -hmm. um, changer. Um, the first two albums I ever got were Bill Haley, Live on Stage, which was a studio album. <laughs> of course, at the time, it didn't <laughs> register with me, but later on, I found that out. And then, of course, the Elvis uh, in his gold lame suit, you know, a million fans can't be wrong or whatever that, <laughs> that one was. Yeah. So, yeah, that started out on that stuff. It, uh, you know, after I graduated from the instruments in the in the orchestra, little box set of records that I had when I was a kid. But, yeah, we all shook up. I, I came right in on that. Did you come from a musical family? Did your were your family into music? Um, they loved music, um, but nobody was musical that I knew of. Uh, there was some Uncle Pete that I had never met years before I was born. I don't know whatever happened to him, but uh, apparently he played the piano at family parties. Mm -hmm. But uh, <clears throat> I'm an only child, but I happen to have a cousin who was born 15 minutes after I was. Mm -hmm. uh, we were born in the same hospital, in fact, the same doctor. Um, so we, we grew up kind of as brothers, and so they called us the twin cousins, mm -hmm. and that's Jim Honeycutt. And, and Jim and I had sort of parallel lives for a while. He and I got into music similarly about the same time. He got a banjo when he was 14, and a long neck, Vega banjo, five string. Mm -hmm. We were... Uh, you're enraptured by the folk music of the day in those days. And, uh, and I went on vacation with my parents um, 
and I was at the point of wanting not to go on vacation with my parents at that mm-hmm. age. <clears throat> I was about to turn 15. And uh, we went to Nantucket Island. And in the cottage that we rented, there was this, an upright piano in the corner. And so my parents would go walking around the island. And I would, uh, in my young, alienated angst, sit in the dark in the, in the cottage and sit at the piano and pick out melodies. Uh, at the time, I really liked uh, the music of West Side Story. So I would sit there and, and kind of try to find the melodies for the songs from West Side Story. And they walked in on me doing that one afternoon. And they were like, oh, we have a musical talent. you know." And so it was a week before my birthday and they were like, we'll get you a piano, we'll get you a piano teacher. And I was, you know, I really would rather have a guitar. And I, you know, I don't think I want to take, I don't want lessons. I want to do this on myself, mm-hmm. you know, which was kind of presumptive of myself to think that I could learn how to play guitar without anyone teaching me. But that's basically how I did it. I got a Kingston Trio songbook, which was my other musical love at the time. And it had little pictures of the chords. So I could sit there of a Sunday or a, actually all summer, I would sit there and just kind of make my fingers do what it said on the chords. You know, when I started, when I went to buy the guitar, I thought I should get a four string because, you know, really you only have four fingers. How could you have, you know, you, how can you fret more than four strings at a time? Right. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was disabused of that notion quickly. And uh, I got a, a Goya F11, which the selling point was that you could put nylon or steel strings on it. And so uh, that was how I started out. And that was the summer of 63. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that I'm not sure where the, um, I don't know that it runs in my family, although my family uh, were creative. They were both uh, working in advertising, my parents. Okay. Uh, my mother was the copy director of an advertising agency and my stepfather was the uh, art director. And if you ever watch Mad Men, that's kind of what I grew up in. Okay. You know, the, uh, the aroma of martinis <laughs> <laughs> always in the air. So, uh, yeah, that was, but they're very creative and, and they encouraged me to be a creative person. So I think I thank them for that anyway. Did you keep those early instruments or are you, or did, are those long gone? Yeah, those are long gone. Mm-hmm. Um, there's many instruments I wish I still had. I had a, uh, the first acoustic guitar I got after that, that learner one was a Martin D18 which I'm sure would be a really nice guitar to have now. Mm-hmm. First, and then I was in high school and, and I sat next to a guy who used to doodle pictures of guitars and amps on his notebooks. And I was like, you know, what's that about? He said, oh, well, we got a band. And, uh, you know, if you get an electric guitar, you could be in the band. So I worked my way into getting an electric guitar. And the first electric I had, I wish I had that. That was a, a new 1964 Fender Stratocaster, mm-hmm. which I'm sure would be worth uh, quite a bit at this point. But yeah, no, those have gone their way along the way. You know, they've been traded. I, I had a Rickenbacker 12 string that I traded for a VW van at one point, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. uh, and I had a, an SG. I've mostly been a Fender and a Martin player. 
but I had a Gibson SG, very early model when, I don't know if you're familiar with that guitar, but the neck was the same width or whatever depth as the uh, the body of the guitar at that point. Okay. And it had a very round bottom. So if you leaned it up against something, it would fall over and it would always crack right there where the neck met the body. Sure. I had that repaired maybe two or three times. But that was a beautiful guitar. I had, it was a wide neck and it had, I had banjo inlay put on it. It had, you know, birds yeah. flying up and down the neck. It was really a sweet guitar. I've heard a lot of those stories where um, people joined bands because they happened to have instruments rather than, you know, you you connected musically or, or you had similar uh, interests or anything like that. It's just a lot of times it was just that simple. It's, oh, you have a guitar. We have a band. We need a guitarist. You're in. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's kind of how it went. Or, you know, this guy looks cool. He ought to be the bass player. That's kind of the way the Malibu started out. It was it was one of these, uh, you know, it was a small high school I went to. It was called Loyola in uh, Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, you know, you were judged by how cool you were or, you know, the instruments you had. Of course, the drummers usually had the car or the PA to go along with it. And they, they got their way into the band that way. And so, yeah, on. yeah it's funny how that all that comes together. But, uh, you know, those were magical days in a lot of ways, you know, for our band, we pretty much convinced ourselves that uh, we were as good as anybody, even though we had a lot to learn at the time. Mm. Um, and we lived in this little bubble of thinking we were the Beatles or the Beach Boys or whoever at the particular time, you know. Yeah. When you went to college, you, you, you went for sculpture, not for music though? Well, yeah, you know, music was always a refuge away from school for me. The, I think the whole point of not wanting to take lessons was that I could go away from schoolwork and homework and I could just sit there and figure it out myself. And most of the Malibus went to the same college. We went from Loyola to Georgetown University in D.C., and uh, actually, I wanted to go there for writing, for journalism. I wanted to be a writer, um, you know, very much into, you know, Fitzgerald and Hemingway and that kind of thing. But mm -hmm. I was not given the advanced placement English credit that I was supposed to get. Mm -hmm. So I wound up taking freshman English. And at the end of freshman year, the administration said, oh, well, we made a mistake. You're supposed to have the credit. So don't worry about your English credits anymore. And by that time, I thought, well, I can be a writer no matter what I, I take. And so I was, I was attracted to the smallness of the art department at Georgetown at those days. Because mm -hmm. really nobody went to Georgetown to be an art major. Uh, you know, it was kind of something to uh, flesh out your liberal education in mm -hmm. those days. Georgetown was a sleepier place in the mid-60s than it is now. Yeah. And... Uh, I, you know, I just figured, well, I'll be a writer no matter what. And the thing is, of course, after I got a guitar within about a year, I had started writing songs. And so I had, that was a habit that I, that I continued through, through the rest of my life, actually, I'm still doing it. So uh, I was kind of being a writer anyway, and I would, uh, you know, move into the, into the uh, art department 
and the sculpture teacher was very good. She, she, you know, very much inspired me to, uh, to continue. And I love doing metal sculpture. That, that was basically what I concentrated on in the last mm -hmm. few years. Do you still, do you still sculpt today? No, I don't. As a matter of fact, I, you know, I've thought about going back to that and having a, uh, well, one occasion here. When I moved to N Nashville in uh, 1998, 1997, my supplemental income came from being a substitute teacher, which is it works well for a musician because you can go and come when you'd like and you mm -hmm. don't have to check in every day there. And one day it was a uh, career day at Centennial High School. And in my classroom, it just happened to be the art career that came into my room. And so I began talking to the guy and, and he turned out he was looking for someone who knew how to weld because he had this, uh, this commission to do a statue for somebody. And uh, he was looking for someone to help him with that. And I said, well, you know, that's exactly what I did. So for the next three months, that was the only, you know, practical use I ever made of my my college years. Sure. I got to make this uh, statue. I didn't design it, but I, I constructed it for him. And actually, I learned how to arc weld. I was doing oxyacetylene before that. And so, yeah, it was a great that it was a great time for me to just to. It's just such a visceral thing to do the the metal sculpture. You just kind of get sweaty and you get in there with it and you put the mask on and yeah yeah so but i have continued the art through the years i did prints through the years my my wife and i used to make calendars and i'd make uh you know woodblock prints and she would make uh her, whatever she was making some kind of print uh, at the time and then i inherited the house that i grew up in in forest hills new york um the early 90s and my stepfather, as I mentioned, was a, a commercial artist, but he was also a fine artist. And he, between his art supplies and my art supplies left over from college, which I had stored there in the attic, I figured well, here's a good chance to renew my art career. So I started painting. I had written a song about the unfortunate demise of the, uh, of the rockers who had inspired me. The, uh, the martyrs of rock and roll, as I like to call them. And having been raised a Catholic, I, I was familiar with these holy cards that they would give you at, at mass of the saints. And I wanted to start making these paintings that were kind of like holy cards of the saints and martyrs of rock and roll. So I started doing that and it continued through, uh, well, I, I'd still do it a little bit. I don't necessarily concentrate on the dead rockers because of course it's an endless supply of <laughs> subjects unfortunately yes, that's true uh, but um, I was fortunate enough to have a few exhibits of my martyrs of rock and roll um, maybe five years ago or so mm -hmm. and so I, I do continue painting and uh, during the quarantine that was pretty much what I did a lot of I, I made a lot of paintings and if you look on my Instagram page you can see many of those paintings that's kind of what I use the Instagram thing for so, yeah, I mean, I, I consider myself a renaissance man of uh, whatever. I think, you know, the only good life to live is a creative one. I've written, you know, maybe four screenplays now and, uh, you know, whatever I can think of to do creatively, I usually 
That's great. You got to stay busy. Well, yeah. And it's, you know, it feels good if you make something good and otherwise you still learn something by even, even the bad things that you create, you make mistakes and you learn from them. So let's talk about your, your, your transition from college. You, you were in a band called Sageworth. Yes. And that started at Georgetown. Well, that was a continuation of the Malibus actually. Mm -hmm. The Malibus became somewhat passe um, around 1967 when, uh, you know, we were all getting a little bit more active in the social struggle that was going on in in the country at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, John, John Zambetti, who was my friend who uh, had the Malibus and he and I, basically started that in high school he had the band and i I joined it and and we both started writing songs around the same time and we had continued that into college john decided to go off in medical school and uh, so he was very much uh, kind of out of the picture because of his studies and so i took over the lead guitar and around that time is when we decided we should change the name to a more a hipper name, you know, at the time. And for a brief moment, we were called the True Levelers, which was the name of kind of a diggers, kind of a social active, um, you know, local group in San Francisco. And, and we were very influenced by West Coast music. And a, and a wonderful singer named Annie McClune joined the band around that time. So we had this combination of kind of a L.A., Buffalo Springfield, a little bit of the doors in there, and San Francisco, Janis Joplin and, and Grace Slick. And we were doing original music half half of our set at that point. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so Stageworth, you know, organically grew out of the Malibus at that point. And, and we were doing really well by the time we reached graduation, which was 1970. We were uh, one of the better bands in the Georgetown, D.C. area, and in that area was was a pretty good hotbed of music at that point. A couple of years ahead of us at Georgetown was a guy named Bill Danoff. Bill had a band called Fat City, which eventually transformed into the Starland Vocal Band, and Bill is responsible for the song Take Me Home Country Roads which he wrote like 90% of, and mm-hmm. John Denver, I think, added a couple of lines on that. Lou Harris was playing in the same circuit, and uh, we were good friends with her. Uh, Nils Lofgren had the band Grin, and they were a, a local favorite. And, you know, Roberta Flack was also coming out of D.C. at that time. And I'm always, I might be wrong about this, but... We had a version of the song, The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face, that we learned from a Ewan McCall album, a folk album. And we were playing that locally for a number of years before Roberta came out with her version of that. Uh, So I'm not sure, but I think that we had something to do with that that particular hit of hers. and uh, and so DC, yeah, it was a good place to uh, be out of. Uh, we there was a local writer who wrote for the Washington Post named Tom Zito, and Tom wrote a, an article with the headline "Too Good to Be a One Town Band," 
about Sageworth. We just happened to have the summer of 70 and 71, even though we were kind of opening shows because we were opening the show, we got the media attention to, for the deadline. <clears throat> yeah. We, uh, so we were in the paper a number of times with our picture. There's a thing called the Berlin Airlift, which was at the RFK Stadium. And uh, it was the Allman Brothers and uh, uh, I think Pacific Gas and Electric and Crow and I uh, forget who else was in there. But, you know, we it was our picture that, that graced the article. And then we played, of course, that was a turbulent time for... Uh, for the world anyway. And so sure. all the demonstrations, we played at a lot of the demonstrations at the Washington Monument and at the March on the Pentagon and those, those things. And, uh, and because, you know, either we had friends or we happened to be at the right place at the right time. Sure. You know, we made the NBC news the next night <laughs> when it would John Chancellor, there was this, well, we, we were supposed to go on in the middle of the night and because of delays, we didn't go on until dawn playing right there in front of the uh, Washington Monument. And the stage was the same level as the hedge in the front of it. And it was this maybe three foot hedge in front of it. And our lead singer, it, we had a male and a female lead singer. And Jack, the lead singer was flirting with a girl in the front row and he was kind of coming onto her and coming to the lip of the stage. And all of a sudden, Jack disappeared. He went, <laughs> he stepped on the hedge, and he was gone. And and that particular moment was captured on the NBC News footage of oh, John Chancellor <laughs> intoned over it, saying, "And the same band that started it was still playing when the sun came up." You know, it was, it was silly that he would say that, but that you know. Yeah. Like 20 bands playing. Oh, I can't imagine seeing the singer just disappear like that. That, that had to be something. Um, <laughs> well, we've had drummers fall off the risers. That, yeah, that's I can see that. But, uh, yeah, well, you know, you get on stage enough times, sooner or later, weird things happen. Yeah. Now, were you in Sageworth when you met uh, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks? No, you know, Lindsey and Stevie had that band Fritz <clears throat> before uh, Buckingham Nicks. And when I did meet them, which came um, quite a few years after that, um, I realized that we had parallel lives on separate coasts. Um, mm -hmm. Stageworth broke up at the end of 73. I hung around Boston. We were in Boston at that point. And I had uh, my one breakthrough was this song called Hearts on Fire, which was recorded by Graham Parsons and Emmy Lynn Harris. Right. The Angel album. And so when I had that, there was a guy named Chris Darrow, who uh, had a few albums of his own, but also was in Kaleidoscope and Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, and was a great multi-instrumentalist and a kind of real Americana player before Americana was a term. Yeah. And he wanted to produce Sageworth. And that was one of the things that eventually broke us up because some of us wanted to make that risky move to go west and, some of them thought it was, you know, oh, we got to stay here. So once the band broke up, I contacted Chris. I said, you know, Sageworth's broken up. And he said, oh, that's great, because I want you to play with me. And so I made my way out to California in spring of 1974. And uh, he was about to do a tour of England. His tour support got withdrawn. 
so I wound up being his band, you know, ironically after he, cause he said that kind of jokingly sure. when he said it. <laughs> and, and so uh, we did a month long tour of England opening for uh, a group called the Man Band, which was kind of the Welsh Grateful Dead. They never did a lot over here, mm-hmm. but they were pretty big over there at that point. And so it was during that time I met the man who eventually a couple of years later from United Artists in England uh, would offer me a deal after seeing me play at the Troubadour with another band that I had assembled on the West Coast. And so Sageworth, yeah, Sageworth was pretty much in the past. And then once I got that deal offered to me, which was in February of 76, um, we were looking for producers. We had been doing demos at this funky old studio in Van Nuys called Sound City which of course has become famous thanks to Dave Grohl and all the great records that they've produced through the years. And of course, some of the other people that worked there was, were Buckingham Knicks and Fleetwood Mac. And so once I had the deal, Dwayne Scott, who was the engineer we had been working with, said, uh, well, how about Buckingham Knicks as your producers? And mm-hmm. I was like, I really don't know who that is. They gave me the record to listen to. And, and despite the fact that I thought it was a little overproduced um, strings and things on that Buckingham Knicks album, I, I recognized the music was very similar to what I like to do and, and thought it might be a good idea. And this was just as what they call the White Album, the Fleetwood Mac album, the first one they did was starting to get some traction. Mm-hmm. Uh, Over My Head was the first single that, that anybody was noticing. And of course, that was Christine McVie's. But, you know, I met them and I went to see them play and, and I was very much taken by Stevie, of course. And Lindsay, you know, he was an amazing player in, in his own right. He heard my stuff when Stevie did too, and they liked the songs that I that I had as my demos. Mm-hmm. So uh, they were interested in maintaining their identity outside of Fleetwood Mac. They wanted to keep the Buckingham Knicks brand alive outside of because they didn't know how it was going to go. Nobody nobody knows the future, and so um, it was agreed that we work together. I had to work around their recording schedule for rumors which right. gave me quite an insight into what was going on there. And that, you know, the first time I really got to sit and talk with Lindsay was uh, he was doing the harmonic overdubs, those little very high notes on the secondhand news. If you listen to that track that he was recording as a Wally Hyders. Yeah. So uh, it, uh, it organically evolved there and it, it, was one of the more fortunate things that ever happened to me. And Had Lindsay and Stevie been doing much producing to that point? None. Yeah. I was their first project and, you know, technically other than their records, my records were the first ones that Stevie had uh, sung on. And so, you know. So, so rumors came out in, I believe, February of 77 and your first album, Fundamental Role, also came out in 77? It did. Yeah, it came out, I think, in March of that year. Um, We started the recording of it in the mid-summer of 76, um, around August or so. And uh, that, again, we would do maybe a week and then they would go off and do their thing and come back. And then, 
And so that was a little frustrating for me at the time because it was like, yay, it's all happening. You know, because, you know, I had always been in bands. That was the other weird part about it. I had always been in bands where I had great singers. And so I never really thought about singing except maybe an oldie or something or just to sing the song to teach them how to do it because I was writing a lot of the material. And then after the hoot night at the Troubadour, even though I had only sung one of the songs, I had written five out of the six that we played that night. And on the strength of that, I was offered the deal, but not the band. And so I was kind of uh, nonplussed, as they say, where it's like, wait, uh, so you want me to sing these, huh? And so, yeah, we do. And so that was a big moment of insecurity for me. And, and having Stevie and Lindsay kind of on my side and in my band, so to speak, for that recording, really gave me a lot of self-confidence and and helped me a lot to uh to gain my own voice as mm-hmm. it were yeah i was i was going to ask you about that timeline what that must have been like you mentioned being frustrated with you know having to you, you get some work done then you have to wait for for stevie and lindsay to come back and that kind of thing well the thing is you know nobody knew before we started working together how it was going to turn out and they became more and more enthusiastic about the project as my songs took shape in the studio. Um, And I was of course very flattered by that. And and the fact that Stevie felt such a part of it too. If you listen to that fundamental role album, the first album, Stevie is all over it because I loved her voice and I loved, you know, coming from a band where Annie McClune was my voice so many times. Yeah. And the other weird thing is Stevie's birthday and Annie's birthday fell within a couple of weeks of one another same year and all that and so it was it also and you know my middle name is Lindsay, and it was like oh well this this seems like a good idea it's all working out very well and so as their enthusiasm grew mine did as well and i felt well it's worth waiting for to to make this happen you know despite the fact my summer project by the way is that i'm writing my life story oh great i am very tediously typing it into the computer. I'm up to 1981 at this point, uh, though I've handwritten the whole thing basically, you know, and, and so um, it, uh, it's amazing to revisit some of these times because, you know, you remember the good times and you remember the high points. Sure. Maybe you'll remember a low point or two, but these extended journal entries because i kept a journal for that 10-year period from 74 to 84 you know i don't know if this check is ever going to come how can i pay for gas what am i going to do you know yeah i'm gonna have to sell some more records or i'm gonna have uh, you know my manager greg lewark was uh, also the american man for elo during those times and so I'd get these free ELO tickets and I liked ELO well enough, but I wasn't crazy about the band. So I would always, you know, hawk those tickets, <laughs> you know, enough, give me enough to eat on for that week or whatever. Right. You know, I, it's, I guess that's paying your dues. That's yeah. what it's called. You do what so you have to. You, you do. do you you know? And the thing is you do music because you basically have to. Yeah. You, I've been very fortunate to be able to, keep a career going and be able to keep doing what I love to do, which is make records and to record.
Walter, do you ever get tired of being asked about magnet and steel? <laughs> <laughs> um, if I do, I smack myself because I am fortunate that this record has endured as it has. You know, yeah. now I, uh, you know, again, it, there's so many talented people that I've run across through the years that have, you know, either been frustrated by trying to make it in the music business or you know, have been victims of label politics, which I can certainly relate to in my own life. Um, no, of course not. Um, it is uh, is the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, I always get curious about that because as music fans, we we look we, we live very much in the present and the past. We we have our favorite bands, we have our favorite songs. We always go back to them, we revisit them. But I feel like artists are are they have an eye on the future you know I, I have to write the next verse the next song then you know what's my next concert i have to come up with a guitar solo for this song it, it always seems to be the next thing and the next thing and the next thing whereas right. as, as fans we don't have that we can we can dwell on on what's come before so I, I often wonder when you have a song that you know you've been playing since 1978 <laughs> and and probably wrote it even a little bit before that um you know what your relationship is with with songs like magnet and steel and your back catalog in general well you know i uh i was talking to dave mason about this a few years ago and dave has kind of a similar thing he's had a few more famous songs than i but you know i have moved forward as you say and i have continued to feel as if i'm a, a vital creator of new music um i've done you know well depending on how you count it 13 or 14 albums at this point and so i always am paying attention to the new stuff but i would be a fool to think uh, to disown what what has drawn people to me and what has mm -hmm. sustained me through these years i mean uh, again it, it is uh, it's a tough thing to have a song that that is endured like that and i don't you know of course if i could figure out what it was i would try to recreate it i suppose if i really thought about it, it is it the toy piano is it stevie is it Lindsay? is it you know of course i was very fortunate to have all that coming together at that point but no um i don't necessarily think one precludes the other i think you know i can do these yacht rock gigs which i have done for the last few years which you know it's a wonderful uh, rebirth of this music and to, and i'm very fortunate even though i feel like my song isn't quite as yachty as some of the other ones are i feel like it's i agree <laughs> great <laughs> you know i feel like i'm more rock than yacht but it it's great to be included in there and uh, i've done these shows with the uh, well, before the quarantine happened, I, I was doing these shows called Rock the Yacht, which basically had Ambrosia as the uh, as the house band. Mm -hmm. They did their amazing songs. 
Peter Beckett from Player, uh, Stephen Bishop, Elliot Lurie, who of course is Brandy or a fine girl, yeah. um, and John Ford Coley uh, without England Dan, and, uh, and me. And we were doing these shows and, and you know, it, quite frankly, it felt like a victory lap. It was like, <laughs> you know, I would do Magnet Steel and Hot Summer Nights, of course, yeah the kind of misfired follow-up to Magnet and Steel that was a hit for Night the following year and then strangely became the most covered song that I've ever written, even to the extent that Eminem used it for his song We Made You in 2009, which blows my mind anyway. That, that <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, that they had enough integrity to come to me and say, we based our song on your song when it to me, it's not really that obvious that it's based on my song. Maybe a little bit more of Knight's version of uh, Hot Summer Nights, but yeah. And there's even, a, there's a new, there's two new versions of Hot Summer Nights that have just come out or are just about to come out. There's a guy in France named uh, Didier who has done his take on it with his French lyrics and uh, the, <laughs> There's a guy named Demon Boy. Um, Demon Boy, I, I met Demon Boy, well, I guess it's 11 years ago now at this thing called the Rock Con, which happened in the Meadowlands outside New York City. Um, I'm not sure what he was doing there. I'm not sure what his career path has been or does, but he just approached me and he just released uh, his version of Hot Summer Night. So, you know, it's amazing how far three chords will take you when you get around to it and you know and the story of hot summer nights but briefly was i was going to do the song of stevie's called sisters of the moon on my mm -hmm. second album and stevie by that time was not one of the producers she was gonna do cameos on the album and Lindsay was the producer and of course there's that that uh, rough and tumble relationship that they go through and they still go through apparently yeah um and so when he heard me running it down in the studio, he was like, what are you doing here? What is this? And I, was, I said, well, you know, Stevie played it for me. She said Fleetwood Mac wasn't going to do it. And I thought it was a great song. I, thought I, was been, I had been playing it live on my tour, 77. He said, well, you know, I think it's not a good idea. You ought to go home and write the closing song for your album and not count on that one. And so that night I went home and I wrote a song about the bands that I've been in, the Malibus and Sageworth, and how the camaraderie of working together, one for all, all for one kind of thing. Sure. And the next morning we recorded it, and it's gone on to be the most covered song that I've ever written. Mm -hmm. um, quite amazing to me that that's the way things work out. Yeah, I think it's a strong song. I, I think it's a good album. In fact, the the fundamental role album and the the Not Shy album when i mean there's two ways to look at it first of all the songs are strong but i also think that when you have stevie nicks singing backing vocals you could have her singing backing vocals to the the nightly news and it, and it would sound good yeah. you know <laughs> no i understand i believe it. it's uh yeah it was, like i say i feel very fortunate that it just happened to be because you know at that time she was not well known mm -hmm. you know, she was another insecure female vocalist. Uh, who, I mean, and I've always kind of been drawn to that, those women. I mean, Annie was one, 
Emmy Lou was another. Emmy didn't know who Graham was when I when I happened to say, well, listen to these records. And yeah. then they sang together. It was in my kitchen. And then uh, when I moved to California, Linda Ronstadt had offered me um, a position in her band. And, you know, and she was very insecure about herself. And uh, and Stevie was similar that way. You know, it was, you know, I said, you know, you really amazing singer. And she's like, yeah, you think so? So, yeah, it, uh, it's, uh, you know, like I say, I felt very fortunate. Person. So Magnet and Steel obviously was the, the breakout hit. It still gets tons of play on, on Spotify and people still play it on the radio. One of the amazing things, and you touched on this, is that it has a toy piano in it. And my understanding is it was Lindsay's suggestion. What, do you know what the inspiration for that suggestion was? Where does any inspiration come from? <laughs> you know, I don't think he'd had, I don't think he'd used it before on any of his recordings that I'm aware of. Um, and it was it was called the Shone Hut, which was like an expensive toy piano. It wasn't one of these little metal rods, but it, it, mm -hmm. it very much played the notes. And so it was playable. And you know, just the way it comes together in the studio. When, when people are working together and they're kind of throwing around ideas. You know, I wanted, obviously the, the beat of, of Magnet and Steel has that 50s stroll beat, which mm -hmm. is that double snare hit every other, every other snare. Um, and that suggested a kind of doo-woppy background. And then the, with those voices with Annie and, and Stevie and Lindsay, coming up with that part and the, and the way that the part works where two of the parts, it's a three part and two of them don't really resolve. But the third one is the high one that Stevie does resolves the, the chord um, just happened to be the way it was. And, and Lindsay was like, Hey, I got an idea. And he brought in that toy piano, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's the magic of the studio when, when, people are working well together yeah. and and uh, you know as as i've been writing about my further recordings i was you know i worked with a guy named errol mankey on my fourth album and he was uh i don't know if you've seen that sparks movie that just came out but he has a talking head um position in that movie okay. was part of that band half nelson which is what sparks was before they became Sparks. Mm -hmm. um, he was part of that band, and he also um, had worked with the Beach Boys, which was the appealing part for me. In 2020, which at that point, 1979, 1980, you know, he gave it gave him that kind of current credibility. And so, but working with him was completely different than working with Stevie and Lindsay and and the interchange and i've always had a big part at least in my mind i've had a lot to say anyway about what the production of the album should be and what my ideas are, are for that yeah. and earl was not quite as open to my my input as uh, stevie and Lindsay had been and so you know things turn into what they are but i'm and i'm not and i think that record turned out well anyway even though it's kind of overlooked that it's called the last stroll Okay. Uh, which was yeah. a very prophetic title because I had a six album deal with Columbia. And after 
well, after Not Shy, the guy who signed me to Columbia, a guy named Don Ellis, had moved on to RCA. And the guy who took his place didn't have the same idea that Don did about me working without Stevie and Lindsay and how stepping out on my own was important to establish myself. Mm-hmm. New guy, Jack Crago was his name. He's like, oh, where's Stevie? I don't hear Stevie. You know, it was like, well, you know, you didn't sign them. You signed me. Right. So, you know, and that was the beginning of the my political career at Columbia where they, you know, they wanted this and they didn't necessarily agree because the Columbia was such a big label and now it's Sony, I guess it's probably the same. When the big machine is on your side, you know, they can get over little bumps in, in the road. Right. And you uh, succeed, I, you know, Magnets when they're not on up. your side, they can put those bumps in the road. Exactly. And yeah. that's what happened in the years after that. Yeah. Um, and and Earl Mankey was supposed to be part of the getting around that. And, and ultimately, it didn't really happen that way. And that's when we broke that deal. Yeah, It's interesting, too, because, as you said, you were signed as a solo artist. It wasn't a band. Um, Lindsay and, and Stevie had a, a pretty popular band at the time. <laughs> and... Um, and you got to take these songs on the road. You can't be yeah. lugging around Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham. I really oh, God, of course. <laughs> as much as you might like to. Yeah. Um, you know, they joined me on a couple of famous shows. I did the end of the year at the Roxy out in L.A., um, the end of the year in 78. And they joined us for those sets. Lindsey and Stevie did. And that was the one. I don't know if you've ever seen. There's a picture. John Belushi also joined us for one of those songs. He came on stage and he was a raging maniac. Yeah. Just this picture of me and Lindsay looking at one another with this expression on our face with, with him. Anyway, but yeah, you're right. I mean, and that's that was the point I was making to Jack Crago is like, you know, you didn't sign them, you signed me. You were fortunate to have such rising stars on your label without having to pay them for it, basically. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, support me because I'm. And then, uh, you know, then I went through, I had the highest, at, when Magnet and Steel was at the highest point, which was number eight, I had this, uh, I performed at the, the Columbia CBS convention in Century City and had the big meeting with head honcho Walter Yetnikoff, who was the president of the CBS group, and Bruce Lundvall, who was president of Columbia at that point. And uh, I was... Not so, uh, not so assured after that meeting, because Yetnikov, first of all, was saying how, well, you know, it took us four albums to break Billy Joel and to break Boz Skaggs. And so, you know, at Columbia, we break artists, not just records. And of course, in my mind, there's the other meaning of break. And I was close to being broke at some yeah. point. That yeah. point. And, uh, and so they, you know, and he left me with, uh, with the not so reassuring phrase, listen, Walter, if Columbia can't live up to its BS, nobody else can. And then it's like, oh, great. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your belief in me. Yeah. You know, fresh product. I wanted to call the next album, but. Uh, oh, that would have been great. <laughs> yeah, well. You know. um, just to close the book on Magnet Steel, it, it's, I think it's a testament to 
you and to to Lindsay in some respects that it would have been so easy to have overdone it with that toy piano, but it's not overdone. It's just kind of just enough in there. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's nice that you've noticed that. Lindsay has a great uh, a great ear, inner ear and outer ear for production and and you know if you he's very conscious of the whole spectrum of sound and we both are very much students of brian wilson and and the kind of you know his canon of creativity that what he has accomplished and and so you know everything from from bicycle horns to uh, marking dogs and things and so you know we i think Lindsay might be a little more restrained about that, but he, uh, you know, he is very tasteful in his production. I was just listening to his new record the other day and uh, yeah, I mean, he's still doing it. Yeah, sure is. Um, before we get to Fascination, I wanted to get, I want to talk about one other song, which happens to be my favorite song of yours. Oh. Uh, Full Moon Fire. I absolutely loved that when it came out. It was is early in the days of MTV. You did a music video for it. Mm-hmm. I don't like all good songs. I can't point to one thing that made me fall in love with that song. I just fell in love with the entire thing. Well, thank you. Tell me a little bit about Full Moon Fire, your inspiration for it. What you know? How did that song come about? Well, Full Moon Fire was written during that. Uh, that semi-dark depressing period that came between breaking the contract because I still had two albums to go for Columbia and we got out of that and I was I was kind of being sustained by that Hot Summer Nights royalties that Night was generating at that point and so it uh, it very much explores the darker side of my personality. I think it uh, it kind of does it lightly, but I was very aware that in the night I would uh, explore the things that I wouldn't do during the day. I would, and and I used the metaphor of you know discovering the werewolf in my soul, yeah. uh, which uh, we created. With the, with the video and uh, it uh, yeah it, you know again relating to it as I've I'm really writing about that period in, in this uh, autobiography that I'm doing and so I, I am relating to how dark it really was for me during those period my mother died in 1980 just as the last stroll was being uh, released and so that kicked off that whole year of Columbia not supporting that record to trying to get something going and then mm-hmm. getting to the point where we say we want to get out of that deal. And, and through that period um, is when that song was written and, and also demoed. And so 
as a songwriter, the things that you experience are what you put into your songs. And it very much had that, you know, it's hard to say, but sometimes the darkness beats the, the light of day. I mean, sure. it's like, are you going to turn, are you going to become consumed by the, the part of you that is that vortex that's dragging you down, even though for some reason you're getting something out of that? You know, I mean, it's similar to look at the two sides of Graham Parsons that I knew when I first met him, when he first sang with Emmy, he had this wonderful charisma, this very, you know, positive aura about him. And then toward the end in Boston in 73, I drove him around the, the gigs that, that they did there. And he was, something was dragging him down, whether of course alcohol and whatever he was putting into his body had something to do with it. And even though I never was much of a drinker, I'm sure some of the things that I was putting into my body had something to do with the full moon fire. And then of course it's the self-deprecating, well, yeah, it's, you're being a fool by doing this, but you are doing this. And it, um, so that's really the background of that song. And um, the video, I, I, was, I grew up in Forest Hills, New York, which is also the home of Michael Landon. And Michael Landon was famous in my mind for I was a teenage werewolf. And so I connected that and I thought, well, this would be a good way to, you know, personify the, the meaning of this song. Yeah. And that's, uh, and I was lucky enough because the New Deal we had was Backstreet, which is Tom Petty's label, uh, independent label distributed by MCA. And uh, Danny Bramson was the head of the label. And he, quite frankly, said to me, you know, I love that you're on the label because now I can prove that I can make a record succeed. That isn't a Tom Petty record. And, and so it seemed like a great symbiotic relationship because I needed someone to prove that I wasn't just a crooner, this Magnet and Steel guy, but yeah, I was yeah. you know, a rocker, which is what I felt like I was. And so I thought we made a rocking record of it. And and the uh, and the record did really well up to a point. And at that point, record politics reared its ugly head. Uh, mm -hmm. Danny wanted to be president of MCA, which came up for grabs. The other contender was a guy named Irving Azoff, who is uh, famous in his own right. Irving mm -hmm. won that battle. Danny lost, and because I was Danny's pet project, I lost you know vicariously with them. yeah yeah that's and that's so a shame there was a, a promo guy named dino barbas who just a week or so before it all kind of went south assured me that he had we kept we're going to keep the bullet it was like i think it was like the upper 30s or in the early 40s in the national charts you know we've got our bullet next week i got all the stations in my pocket was the quote that he gave to me well Apparently, as the next week dawned, it, the stations had fallen out of his pocket and the, the bullet was gone. And Irving thought that was a good reason to stop promoting the record. And I had the meeting with him, you know, and said, you know, Irving, Magnum Steel lost its bullet at least a couple of times. And because they believed in it, they made it happen. And, and he had no incentive to make this happen because it would have reflected on Danny. Yeah. And they, I guess they had had some bitter words 
in their little vying for the presidency. So uh, it, it was a victim of that. And, yeah. uh, you know, a very unfortunate to me because I thought that record was going to do well. I always was very proud of it. And even the video, you know, I point this out, but uh, people don't realize this later on is that, you know, Thriller, the plot of Thriller is very similar to, to the plot of my video there. And it came out eight or nine months later. So yeah. I always feel like somebody must have seen my video or, or something, you know, during that time. Um, that is know. unfortunate. It's unfortunate that the politics can, can play a role in, in things like that. It's uh it was a fantastic song. I had forgotten about the Michael Landon uh, tie in there, the uh, teenage werewolf thing, but, yeah. and then of course, uh, I believe it was a year or two after the song came out, we had uh, teen wolf also. Oh, right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed like a, a trend that was in the air. They say that the ideas are just out there and people grab at them. And I guess that's yeah. probably true, but I, you know, I don't think that it, it, my influence came straight out of my own experience and mm -hmm. my own, uh, my own metaphor as it were. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, I love the, and I love the word play of, of full moon fire. And I've, I've done my share of correcting people over the years that it's not full moon fire. <laughs> I know I, a friend of mine, a really good friend from the, the West coast posted a thing recently on Facebook. I think it's the theater that uh, Quentin Tarantino just bought. And he tied that into the theater in my video, thinking that it was the same one. And he, of course, said full moon fire on his quote. And so trying not to embarrass him because he just had hip replacement or something. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I sent him a private message saying, well, first of all, it was the Los Feliz theater and the, not that one. And it's full moon and uh, anyway so but yeah no that was a crazy thing that video was done basically over one night and uh rather than the gradual me turning into a werewolf hair by hair they you know they swapped me out for lon cheney jr and then all of a sudden but that was me behind that that mask of hair and and it was painful because they had to take it off before we shot the last scene. If you look at me in that last scene in the alley, my face is very blotchy because they have this alcohol based thing that they had to basically burn off the hair that they attached for the other part of the scene. And so, yeah, no, that was, that's a, I mean, but it's always a funny video because I had a lot of friends and, and family in that, in that video and my wife's uh, sister, was the girl with the fangs behind the counter. And we just had dinner with her last week and she was talking about how, you know, she still uses that as one of her things to impress her friends. <laughs> she was in that music video and so, yeah, you know, and, and it, uh, I don't know, what, what can you do? I mean, you're really a, a victim of the politics and there's very little you can do about that unless I guess you have the wherewithal to have all the independent promo you need to mm. circumvent it or make it, you know, have to happen. Yeah. So I don't know. And it's always, it's a weird thing to me because Irving, of course, because of that is now one of my favorite people and he, but he is the manager of one of my favorite friends, Lindsay Buckingham. And he just bought my favorite restaurant in LA called the Apple Pan. 
And so it's just, what are you going to do? Yeah. Well, I have to say, Walter, I'm I'm sorry the early 80s were uh, a dark time for you, but as often happens, dark times kind of are a a good ingredient for creating good, uplifting art. And I thought that that song is a good, upbeat song. I love the hand claps and all of that stuff that's in it. It just all comes comes together. I'm doing doing a house concert tomorrow night. I'm going to play it during this that show. And you're right. I was listening to the record again last week and and the hand claps often go unnoticed. And so I was thinking I should try to get the crowd at this house concert to, to supply the hand caps yeah. because I'm, I'm going to be playing it acoustically. But yeah, That's on yeah, the I Wild Exhibitions album. Yes, I appreciate that, uh, that you, you're a fan of that and that, that you've paid attention to it to that degree. Yeah, and, and I, I hesitate to tell you this story because of the, the bad... Um, connotation that downloading has but i had never been able to find that in the record store i got it on napster when the napster craze happened and i downloaded it from napster and i i I have it now because ebay is a wonderful thing you can find used anything on ebay yeah but uh but yeah it was I, i i that was one of the first songs that I sought out when Napster came out. I was like, oh, I wonder if they have Walter Egan. <laughs> uh, well, do you have the vinyl of it? Is that what you got on eBay? I don't have the I don't have the vinyl. I have it on a have it on, I had I found a cassette and I found a, a CD. Yeah, the cassette is probably uh, more to the point. Um, there was a guy who had a label called Renaissance Records and he might still have it and he without my knowledge got the rights to uh, to remaster that and and reissue it so great it is available cds but it's not exactly the the mastering that i would have done to it yeah. but still you know who knows anymore <laughs> you know the thing is this is an argument that we do all the time it's like when you're in a studio you've got the greatest sound and you you can have everything oh this is so wonderful yeah. You know, but people are going to listen to it on these little earbuds or these, uh, you know, earbuds. And I think you need to to trend it for that, because otherwise you're going to have to just invite everybody into the studio that wants to hear your record. And it's, it gets a little cumbersome. So, yeah, yeah even on, on Fascination, my my friend in England who, who put that record out for me, um, you know he's he is an audiophile and and we went back and forth about some of these remasters that he did and i was like he what are you listening to it on i'm listening to it on the computer on my earbuds and it's like oh you've got to listen to it on so but yeah but it's got to translate into the real world and sure these days i don't mean to be a neil young about the (laughs) are you you a vinyl guy do you listen on vinyl um, I do have a record player and I do listen to some vinyl, but most of the time I, I have an iPod that uh, has like 12,000 songs on it. <laughs> yeah. You know, everything that I've written is on there. And, and so I am, I'm a big fan of the fact that I can carry around my whole record collection. Yeah. Sometimes so. convenience just wins. I'm 
So uh, let's talk about Fascination. This is on Red Steel Music. Red Steel Music, yes. Came out, it, this is already out. It came out in 2021. Right. Uh, the English version, well, in, in England, it came out in uh, February. And it's being finally kind of pushed over here mm -hmm. and in Europe now. Um, the recordings are a few years old, actually. I was recording at home by that point, doing these recordings with my drummer, a guy named Ron Krasinski, who has played with everyone from Sheena Easton to the Everly Brothers to now he plays with the Box Stops. Mm -hmm. And he is just a, a consummate uh, drummer with great taste and, and really easy to work with and very, very amusing guy anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were recording at home and as I said, I have never stopped writing, you know, and then for that matter, every year I put together an album of the songs that I've written during that year. Um, it's been pointed out to me and I guess it's the way things are. I have these kind of eruptions of uh, records that come out. I have those first <laughs> five and then the one that we started that never quite got finished at that point, which became the Lost Album in 1999 and 2000. And that Red Steel put that out as the Mad Dog Album in England. Okay. And they also released a live recording from, uh, I think it's from Dallas. It might've been the Toronto shows in El Macombo um, as the meaning of live. But that was kind of stillborn at that point. They, they manufactured them and then he, for whatever reason, went off and did real estate for the next 20 years. Um, the beginning of uh, the, the COVID mess last March, a year ago, March, I had a dream about this guy. His name is Robert Karch. Um, and it was a funny dream. And I, I sent him a text. I had seen him um, in May of 2019 when the Malibus played at the pop international pop overthrow at the cavern club in liverpool and uh as always i brought a, you know a healthy selection of these yearly albums that i had been making and then you know culling through the years mm -hmm. and one of them happened to be just generically called the pamela album so after i got back in touch with him about that funny dream i had um, he said, well, I'm starting to label again, and uh, I'm really interested. What's this? What's the Pamela album? What's that about? And of course, it uh, it describes an infatuation I had with the uh, infamous and famous Pamela DeBar. Mm -hmm. I came into contact with, well, I was casually met her in the early 2000s. Right. My, daughter, my daughter was uh, telling me how much she liked the book. I'm with the band. And I said, well, that's funny. You know, we're, we were just about to go to L.A. And I said, well, you know, I'm friends with her kind of on Facebook. And so I got in touch with her. She invited us over and uh, it sort of grew out of there. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife is 11 years younger than I am. So I've always kind of skewed myself to that age demographic. And so to meet a woman who was actually my age, Pamela's like two months younger than I am, was kind of a revelation to me that uh, I could feel an attraction to someone my own age. And so it sort of grew out of that. And uh, I would 
was doing these Malibu's gigs on the West Coast. And so I would go out there maybe four or five times a year. And I would get that opportunity to, to further my relationship for what it's worth with her. And most of my relationship in this, that's described in this record happened in my own mind. It happened, okay. you know, it's like, yeah, okay. Well, and to me, every one of these songs is connected to one of those occasions where I would be able to take her out or whatever and something would happen and that sparked this idea or that. Uniquely, it is kind of a concept album, which is what Robert recognized in it when he said he wanted to put it out. And he and he said, well, you know, it, the fact that you wanted her and you didn't get her was uh, is kind of more relatable to the average person than than the opposite of that would be. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, it does really very much describe being infatuated with someone trying to win them over and all the various kind of ways you try to do that. And then yeah. <laughs> ultimately you guess the disappointment starts to set in and you start to realize, and you know, the one before the Elvis cover on there, I, which I did because that was one of my famous favorite Elvis songs and also one of hers, the last song waking up to you, the one before that is, is kind of the fantasy one. It's like, Oh, well, maybe if I just think about it, this is going to, it'll work. And, yeah. and of course it didn't. daughter actually went on to live in her spare room for a year or so wow. after after that initial <laughs> thing and so so I would <clears throat> definitely see her you know when I would go to LA so it was something that was protracted even though uh, it was kind of falling away and then it took a year or two after that for me to to regain my my self <laughs> you know my self-esteem I guess you'd have to say mm -hmm. um, and again, going back to this book I'm writing about myself, it seems a pattern that I, I very much hold on to these infatuations or loves or however you want to term them, way beyond the fact that when I should have. Yeah. A couple of them, I keep reading through these pages of my journal and I'm going, God, get over that woman, get over it. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. And, it, and I just keep holding on to it. And now so, you know how that turned out. Now you know, yeah. I spent so much time and energy on this and I know where it ended up. So, yeah, you're, you're yelling at again, your younger self. But then again, the troubadour that I am, the uh, songwriter's revenge, as it were. I, you know, I think I got a really good album out of these, yeah. <laughs> uh, these turbulent feelings that I, that I had. And so I guess that's my lot in life as they say. Well, I mean, a lot of music's been written about love and loss. So <laughs> yes, well, you know, and, but I definitely got over it in that last song, which is the only co-write on that 
with a woman named Beth Sass that I've written with here in Nashville. Uh, Hell, I know it's over is uh, kind of the, the full stop, as they say yeah. at the end of it. Like time, I gave her all I had inside my heart, my soul. an interesting bookend with magnet and steel uh, not that this is the end of your career but it's uh the infatuation with stevie the infatuation yeah. with pamela i've made a career out of unrequited yeah. relationships yes and, <laughs> well you know, mo most so of us know, i've got the uh, probably at least three albums in the can i mean this was recorded four or five years ago yeah yeah even though it seems contemporary because it's just come out yeah, most of us have this unrequited love and we we don't get to any benefit out of it like you do at least. <laughs> well you know again this uh, songwriters get and musicians get paid to travel and uh, if they're lucky are able to translate uh, their heartbreak into some kind of uh, career have you ever seen the movie walk hard yeah. uh just just bits of it yeah take off on the uh, johnny cash thing with uh, yeah it, that is the funniest movie it's, like, <laughs> it's I, I always keep meaning to to see it because i've seen little pieces here and there but I, it, it's a very very clever very funny movie but there's just one scene where he, he's having this argument with his wife and uh you know at one point he kind of looks off into the distance and she goes don't you go writing a song while I'm arguing with you. You know, and it's just like, you know, it, it's, a, it's a weird thing about uh, being a songwriter because you, you really are always doing it. It's, it's yeah. the weirdest. Just a thing. turn of phrase will we'll get stuck yeah, in your head. Exactly, you know? exactly. And uh, if you're lucky or if you're, you know, diligent, you, you don't lose that because yeah. those are the things you're going to sleep at night. You're <laughs> oh yeah that'd be a great song that'd be great and then you wake up and go, what the hell was that yeah you know and it's you it's probably bad form to stop an argument for a second so that you can write something down <laughs> i don't i don't want to forget what you just said let me write that yeah, down right, exactly <laughs> it doesn't help the relationship but yeah. uh, but it does help the catalog sometimes yeah was pamela aware that you were writing these songs when you were writing them or did she find out it after was. i was uh, using them as songwriters do to try and win her over i would <laughs> i would send her uh, i would write it i would record it and i would send it to her and sometimes she liked them and sometimes she didn't say much about it and after a while i think she just kind of went oh, okay here we go again <laughs> was, but uh i don't know i mean i don't i don't regret it. it it was the the best thing about it for me was 
this and this was happening, you know, 11 years maybe after I had uh, separated and then divorced from my wife. And, and, you know, you get to a point where the love songs you write are about remembering 20 years ago, remembering, you know, when it was. And yeah. to be able to experience it on a day-to-day -day basis was uh, exhilarating to me. It was like, it made me feel younger. It made me feel alive. It made me feel, well, all the things that I say in those songs, but it, yeah. uh, you know, it, uh, it's a wonderful thing to be able to uh, feel that way again. Since I felt like this, dreaming of a kiss, now I feel brave. starts off with I'm with the girl which is obviously a play on the the title I'm with the band uh -huh. um, I wrote down my note is that this sounds like it it could have been on Roy Orbison's mystery girl album oh that's nice I like yeah that. it, it oh. sounded like something uh something that, that of that era I wasn't sure how aware you were of that particular album but um it did I'm really kind not. Of... I am I you know more traveling Wilburys uh, aware of Roy in the later years yeah. and so uh I'll have to check that out check that out it's uh you know it, I try not to be if I'm conscious of something sounding like something else I I will try to shy away from it usually mm -hmm. unless I'm trying to actively make an allusion to a certain song or whatever yeah um, so but uh yeah I will check that out so going to uh, Miss Pamela which um you know this this it's, it's an up-tempo song it reminds me both with a little bit of wordplay and with the the overall sound of it it, it and again I'm, I'm not nothing is a direct copy or a ripoff but to me it reminded me of nick lowe and i know nick lowe has a lot of similar um influences that you have that's true i think nick and you know i think i'm somewhere in between nick and jackson brown and tom petty and all those things those are my peers and those mm -hmm. are you know dwight twilley for that matter was one of the people just before I started making records that I really admired. And so I was trying to do that, that kind of uh, rock and roll, which to me is what it is. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, and I think that's a compliment. So I'll take it that way. It is. <laughs> uh, and it's a very linear story. It seems like with the, with the songs from one to the next, you, 
you go into a fool in love, which it seems here that you're already admitting that this isn't working out the way that you want it to. Well, I was I had my suspicions that it wasn't coming coming to fruition, and which is the next uh, place it goes, mm -hmm. which of course is the source of the title, and that's the only uh, song. The fruit of fascination is the only one that doesn't have my real drummer on it, uh, and the recording is is like. But there's something about that recording that I really like. That's probably my favorite track on it, the, the fruit of fascination, and and I, I like the lyrics in that one a lot too i think uh, yeah it's a slower tempo song it's not really a it's not really a ballad it's almost a shuffle yeah interesting yeah. delicious were the kisses that we shared there on the sidewalk Moonlight shining in your hair, no more need for small talk. Then you left and went away, back to separation. Now you're my favorite memory, a source of fascination. Obsession's taking hold of me, I didn't see it coming. Now it's got me wondering just what. You go into lovers which is a, a little bit more up tempo again I, I my note on this was i really like the electric guitar work on this album on this oh, song yeah thanks thank you uh why don't actually the press release doesn't get into all the credits on the album besides you and your drummer who else was part of this anybody it was just you oh, no it's a, just <laughs> me and ronnie yeah yeah, yeah it was uh very much uh in-house you might say i worked cheap and uh, it was my lonely guy years. I had a lot of time to be in the studio myself and just kind of do it. <clears throat> so, yeah, it's really just me and Ronnie. So you played acoustic, electric, bass, uh, keyboards. What, uh, what else did you do? <laughs> um, I did a couple of percussions in there. Ronnie did a lot more than I did. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, it, uh, you know, and I play organ more than piano because... I'm self-taught keyboard player as well, and you don't have to be quite as rhythmic on the organ as you do to play piano. And, yeah. and so, yeah, that, uh, but yeah, no, it's, uh, well, actually, I, I lie. Um, Hell, Hell, I Know It's Over is the one track that has a, a real piano player, which Beth, Beth Sass played okay. that, so. I don't want to shortchange her. <laughs> no, and, don't she want also, to and she also does sing background on that that particular track. So, mm -hmm. you know, to me, almost it's almost an uh, you know appendage at the end there. Those those last three after uh, "Treat Me Nice" are, are kind of well. I have a, an album called "True Songs" that was kind of secretly released in 2017 that, that not too many people noticed. And gestures and fruit of fascination were already on that on that okay. recording, so um, it uh, to me that's me recovering my 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 pride as as it were. <laughs> yeah, you know, 
you know, stop moaning over, over this person and get it over. And not coincidentally, I guess that's around the time that my former ex-wife and I started living together again, <laughs> which we're still doing. And so, uh, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> Go into woo to woe. And again, I love the wordplay with that. I did my best to woo you, woo you, had me from the start, my love could not get through to you, you turned away my heart, but the look in your eyes implied that I stood a chance, but no reciprocation came to play my romance, and his heart with my heart on my sleeve Now I'm blue from this blow Cause the woo turned to woe oh, 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 oh. And the woo turned to woe oh, 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 oh. Cursing on the day that we met I just can't let go oh, oh, no. Knowing that I need you yet Why'd you make it so hard? And my note here, and you maybe I'm crazy, I think that this song shares some musical DNA with Full Moon Fire. Hmm, it, it does. I think you're right. It, uh, I think of it as being a little more country than, than Full Moon Fire was, maybe. Mm, yeah. But uh, it's, I think it uh, might be in the same key, if I'm not mistaken. You have some, um, you definitely have some more country tinge on this album, a little more Americana flavor to it um you know you go into yesterday forever and today which i think is a little reminiscent of and again not a not a ripoff just i think a lot of same musical influences uh marshall crenshaw is the name is the is what i wrote down for this one well yeah i think it's marshall probably but through the root of both of us which is the beatles and you know the the last couple of malibu's albums were done to uh, realize the other side of uh, that surf band because on our on our initial album the malibu's rule album that we put out on rhino there's an interview that we did at the world's fair in 1965 and on that interview john zambetti who is the other guy in that band says that we do everything from surf to English sound, and which is true. In in high school, we were covering surf songs and English sounds because that was what was happening in, at the time. Mm-hmm. And so we did an album called uh, Queen's English. Um, it may have been eight years now, eight years ago. And it's Queen's with the apostrophe after the S so that it refers to me growing up in Queen's and the English sound of the band. And so we milked that about as far as we could take it. And we did another QE2, which is the one that just came out. Um, and this would, to me, that was a song that I wrote with that 
release in mind because I knew we were going to do another one of those because okay. John was very much obsessed with it. And I was like, no, let's go back to surf music. Let's do, you know, and, and I wanted to, uh, you know, but we can do it later. We can be like a combination, call it Sergeant Pet Sounds or something, you know, that would be <laughs> that kind of blend of uh, more intelligent surf music. And uh, anyway, of course, it didn't happen that way. And I'm happy that it happened to be on this album. I that that is a song that actually went through about two or three different lyrical um, revisions. I guess is the word. Uh, okay. But uh, but I think again, when this project started to take root over in England with Robert, I was telling him that I thought. It could be Nick Lowe and not Nick Lowe, uh, Nick Drake in reverse, except I'm alive. You know, the fact that in England, I feel like I've been very much neglected as a career. And Magnet and Steel, I don't think did quite as well over there. Certainly not as well as it did over here and in other places in the world. So I felt there was a great room to be exploited. And I had all these albums that nobody really knew about that had been released in the meantime. And he had done a couple of my albums 20 years ago. And so that was the, uh, that was one of the songs I felt was quirky enough and kind of would be great for, for those charts over there, whether it's BBC or Pirate or Caroline or whatever, mm -hmm. you know. And, uh, you know, it still may go that way. I feel like things are in a different, time frame these days as they used to be and yeah. records kind of can take their own time to find their audience i guess yeah i agree i agree with that next track is fading love and it's it, the first thing i wrote down was country with an exclamation point uh it's very hank williamsy i think and i wondered was it intentional to do this song in a country style since it sort of deals with that country type music cliche of, of a relationship not working out um i'm not sure it was connected that way in my brain but if you've ever paid attention to pamela in her her proclivities she's very much a kind of americana country rock person and it was very much aimed at that part of her personality mm. that i uh, wrote this particular number 
because every year she does, she goes to Indiana and participates in this James Dean, you know, revival that happens in Fairmont. And there's always pictures of her doing the, the 50s kind of dance that I imagine you would dance to this song too. And so, yeah, that was, you know, a lot of these were very pointed at, you know, what I felt were points that I could get to her heart, I guess you would have to say. Okay. And that, uh, I imagined her dancing in that, that style to this, but uh, yeah, it's very much country, you know, and I've been playing in bands through the years connected to country rock through that Graham Parsons connection in the beginning. And mm -hmm. I was in a band called Brooklyn Cowboys with a, a pedal steel player named Buddy Cage and uh, Joy Lynn White. And uh, we made a few albums around the turn of the century. And then about 10 years later, I, I was part of the Burritos. Um, two, actually two versions of the Burritos. There was Burrito Deluxe, which Technically, it was Pete, Sneaky Pete's burritos, and they didn't want me to talk about Graham Parsons very much, which was ridiculous. And uh, then the burritos, which was with a guy named Chris James, who is carrying on the, the legendary name to this day. And I said I would be happy to be part of it if we could be true to the, uh, the Gilded Palace of Sin, which was the initial flying burrito brothers album and we did one that i think is true to that it's called sound as ever and okay. he's like two or three since then with i i withdrew from the band after that just because i felt like it was too confusing for me anyway they they were because the burritos are like menudo in a sense i mean they're yeah. like extended over years and there's like the burritos of the 80s with gib gilbo and then there's mm -hmm. john Lynn, and then there and I couldn't deal with all the rest of it. It had to be that, that seminal burritos for me. Yeah. So I did that one album with them. And uh, so, and of course I've been living here in Nashville, so it's hard to deny there's a country influence in sure. that I do. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's country rock, if anything, not country. I can't, I can't stomach current country things. Although there's, <laughs> there's movement toward what I, you know, when I met Graham, I was trying to get into country rock and I said, you know, what should I do? Who should I listen to? He said, well, you got to listen to Merle Haggard, George Jones, Charlie Pride, Harlan Howard is a great songwriter you got to listen to. And so that was the path and the template that I've, I've taken with me since then, as far as my country leanings go, I guess. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And, it, and the other part of this is, I was trying to woo her, as it were, as a songwriter. And as a songwriter, I have a broad spectrum of kind of music that I like and that I try to write, just as I try to write screenplays or I try to do other things. I think, well, I'm gonna try and write a song that way. I'm gonna try this kind of thing. And, and you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you think of me, not so much as the, the recording artist from that first spate of albums, but rather as a songwriter that, you know, likes to basically write, 
pop rock songs, but you know, other songs come out as well. Yeah. You know, and it, that's how it works for me. You touched on the Elvis cover. When I walk through that door, baby, be polite. You don't make me so. In fact, even though my dad was into Elvis, I don't think he had this song, Treat Me Nice. And so when I first listened to the, the promo tracks, I, I, I was not aware of this Elvis song. And I wrote down Elvis rockabilly very elvis <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then then of course in doing the research i found out that it was an elvis song so i guess you nailed it <laughs> yeah, well thank you it's a tough it, it is a tough road to hoe as they say um and if it hadn't if i hadn't felt like i did it justice i i would never have let that song out but but i always i felt like well it always had been one of my favorites so i was very aware of all the subtleties of it, and I, and I just, uh, I just put on that uh, Elvis hat, and I went with it. And the Scotty Moore guitar, I tried to approximate as much as I could, and because I don't play jazz guitar at all, and, and there's a lot of jazzy kind of little licks that that he did in there. So, yeah, I do appreciate that. I take that as a compliment because it that was that, intended that way. But I think it, it's in the movie uh, Loving You. Um, no, is it loving you or it's a, which is it? Is it, you know, Jailhouse Rock. I think it's in Jailhouse Rock. Okay. Um, if you ever get to watch that, I'm pretty sure he sings it in that one. Yeah, my, uh, my experience growing up was, I think my dad was doing a lot of the Elvis stuff and I was in my rebellious, I don't want to. I don't want to be around when you're doing, you know, I don't want to watch your John Wayne movies with you. I don't want to watch your Elvis movies with you. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. I understand. I understand. So. You have the epilogue to the album now, Gestures and Pride and Hell I Know It's Over. And obviously the Hell I Know It's Over coming brings the, the kind of the album to its full circle. You're admitting to yourself, you've got the final realization that this thing's not going to happen. And, but it, it's, it's a little uplifting because you, you seem to be saying in this song that you're okay admitting it. You're okay with, with where things are now. Well, that's it. I think through gestures and, and pride, I have uh, dealt with the, uh, the semi bitterness of, of the uh, perceived humiliation of, <laughs> of, you know, okay. Well, I mean, I'm only going to tell you this because it's true. Um, is it not the most intense of ironies that the most sensual woman for her whole life built around the sensuality, if you want to use that word, of her life, tells me as I'm trying to kiss her in the dark corner of Disneyland, how she feels she's lost her libido. And it's like, now, do I take this personally or do I take it? You know, and it's, it's, it's like, what, 
what? <laughs> you know, because I mean, I'm, there's there's a certain level where I always kind of felt like, well, at least, you know, it's worth a shot to, to have a little fun together. And don't you, you know, but it never was. It never got beyond, uh, you know, some fairly innocent kissing at the most, you know, and it, so it, uh, it, I mean, on one level, I think that's incredibly humiliating that I would be the person to whom she would tell that she doesn't have a libido anymore when, when she lives through her past of, of all the raw encounters that she's right. had with all the famous rockers. And so, you know, I think uh, those two songs reflect me going, what the hell, you know, <laughs> what, yeah. what, you know, what, what am I, chopped liver or what the heck, you know? And so then I think I came, that I got that out of me as it were. And then I was able to see it as a, more objectively in that last song, yeah. the denouement, as it were. And it, uh, you know, I got over it and I'm happy now. And I, I'm, I can be around her and we can be pleasant to one another. And I don't have to feel weird. And she doesn't, I don't, I don't think she feels weird. I did her podcast. That's this good. Came out. So, yeah, you know, it is what it is. And, and, it, and it almost has that literary trope to it too that um of the 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 you know the sort of the lovable loser i came along too late like my timing sucked yeah, well that was another issue that, that i explored early with her was you know how did you miss me during my my wonderful time of being me you know being the rock star and it was like that was the year she was married and having her child and so Oh, okay. Well, okay. We can only uh, be who we are and, yeah. and hope yeah. for the best and the rest. Silly yeah. humans. How it's, did your how did your daughter react to this entire um, you know, proceed, you know, all the proceedings? <laughs> oh, I think she ignored it mostly. <laughs> you know, because at that time there there seemed very little hope and there wasn't neither my ex-wife or I were trying to be back together at that point. We were trying to be friends and cooperative around our children. But I don't think, I certainly had no thoughts that we would ever be back together again, and nor did she. She didn't even want to come into the house that we used to share that I was keeping at that point. So, I, you know, I never spoke much about it to her. We were certainly together at times. We went to Disneyland a few times together. and But Daphne was off playing, doing her thing, and, and, and Pamela and I would be walking behind or whatever. And so, mm -hmm. you know, and it wasn't like I was trying to put the make on Pamela when Daphne was around too much. Right, right. So I'm not sure, to tell you the truth, I'm not sure how much she was aware of it at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't really want to know. Yeah, it was like, makes yeah. sense. <laughs> you know, well, it was my business. Yeah, yeah. And if it ever came to anything, it might have been her business too. But you know, mm -hmm. it was it, yeah, it was it, it was a little 
sitcom-ish there with her living in the spare room and me <laughs> yeah. sort of trying to put moves on Pamela in whatever ways I was at the time. Uh, you know, I, it was interesting, yeah. let's put it that way. Walter, when somebody takes Fascination home, they play it start to finish, what do you hope that they take away from that listening experience at the end? Um, I'd say that uh, this person who I had thought of as just a remnant of many years ago somehow is really still vital and is still doing all the things that he was doing when the world was noticing all the things he was doing. Um, and hopefully they'll have a, a pleasant uh, listening experience with the music and see that, you know, I'm, a, I'm still a creator of that. And uh, through the, the vagaries of making records, you know, these things don't always come out to everybody's attention, even though these days there's such a broad spectrum of ways of, you know, getting your stuff out to people. Mm -hmm. It's just hard to know if it's reaching them, I guess, is the question. I'm, I'm supposedly the music business you learn that nothing is ever real until you're cashing the check. But um, they're talking to me about being an opening act for this Firefall and Orleans tour, mm -hmm. which I think will be great to show people that I'm still alive, still doing what I have always done, and hopefully still doing it as well as I've done before. Where is the best place for people to find you and to buy this album? Um, my... The best place to find me is probably my Facebook page, Walter Lindsay Egan. Um, there's an official Walter Egan page that the record label has set up that is more devoted to promoting this new project and the other. They've reissued a number of my records since this happened, and, and right. I think it's a good place to go. Um, we're I'm in a weird limbo with my website at the moment because my old friend from college has been my webmaster as such and i have just kind of not paid much attention to my website and and the guy who wants to book me for these firefall dates he said well have you seen your web page you know you don't it doesn't even say anything about your new album it's like oh really i, I wasn't aware but i you know i haven't been in close contact with my friend about it it just seemed not as relevant as the Facebook page and and that kind of thing. So um, I'd say those Facebook pages, Walter Egan official, Walter e Walter Lindsay Egan, those are the most vital day-to-day -day ways of finding out about me. We are in the process of either starting a new web page or getting the old one back into uh, the current uh, world. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's weird information about me all over the place. If you <laughs> Google my name, someone sent me a thing the other day about 10 facts about Walter Egan that you might not know. And I was amazed to find out that I'm worth $4 million. Um, <laughs> and I was like, I wonder where I can cash a check for that. So, yeah. so yeah, it, uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there as well. Mm -hmm. There are some who are 
taking the, uh, I've seen a few articles about poor, poor Walter Egan and, you know, he had, he had it all and, you know, Stevie put him down and Columbia put him down and, you know, and I suppose you could interpret it that way from the outside, but it's not exactly that way from yeah. the inside. And hopefully if I ever get finished typing this book, um, people will be able to read the story from the horse's mouth. Yeah. Well, I love I love rock biography, so I'm I'm very excited by that news. I can't wait to till you're finished with that. Thanks. Yeah, uh, Walter Egan, you have been way more than generous with your time. I'm so appreciative. Uh, the album is called Fascination. Um, go out and get it. It's uh, it's a fun listen. It's uh, you're going to hear a guy who, you know, you don't sound like your your age. You sound you well, know, thank your, you. I appreciate. Your voice still that. sounds good. I just uh, had my yearly physical and uh, the doctor said the same thing to me of a different way. He said, uh, yeah, it's hard to believe you're the age you are. So I appreciate that. I've always uh, maintained that rock and roll keeps you young. And I think uh, it has done that for me. So, yeah, well, thank you, Michael. I really appreciate your interest and obviously more than surface interest. You must be doing a great job with this. I'm going to have to pay attention to what you're doing. Michael's Record Collection is hosted and produced by Michael Citro. Logo graphic courtesy of Jerry Cutchins. Follow Michael's Record Collection on social media, at Mike's Records on Twitter, and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. If you like what you hear, you can support the show through our Patreon, at patreon.com slash Michael's Record Collection. For the free newsletter version, go to substack.com and just type Michael's Record Collection into the search bar. Thanks for listening.